One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. And a very good Thursday, I knew you said Friday, very good Thursday morning to you as we welcome you along uh, to the programme. Bernie's taking your calls at 0818 103 103 and you can text our WhatsApp, the programme, to 0862 103 103. And as you probably just heard there from Barry, breaking news uh, this morning uh, for Ryan uh, Tuberty. He's announced a move to uh, London. He's moving to Virgin Radio in London, uh, but the show is also going to be broadcast on uh, Dublin uh, station at Q102. So he wasn't very long without a uh, job and there had been much speculation that he probably would go to uh, London. So it has been confirmed and he announced it this morning. He went on the with Virgin Media onto their breakfast show, which is presented by Chris Evans. And that's where he confirmed his uh, move to uh, London. Uh, 0818 Shall we wish Ryan Tuberty all of the very best. Now, we were talking about smoky fuels on the programme this week, particularly in regard to Annette. Annette joined us because her carbon monoxide uh, alarm went off and she's waiting for her chimney to be swept. But she's she's of the belief that it was a build up from uh, smoky fuels and that you need to have your chimney swept more often if you have not smoky fuels, if you've smoke free, smoke less uh, fuels. But then others were saying, no, that isn't uh, the case. But there's always this argument about the a complete ban on smoky fuels and people who live in rural areas always fight and put forward the strongest arguments when it comes to why we should be allowed in rural areas to burn whatever people want to burn. And rural TDs are very much getting back involved in this argument and reigniting the whole turf wars. And this was after the Environmental Protection Agency brought out a survey that found a third of Irish people are actually opposed to a ban on uh, smoky fuels. We remember it was last October that the government introduced the controversial ban on the sale of all smoky fuels and that was things like uh, peat, coal and wet wood and there was a ban on that if you wanted to use it to heat uh, homes and of course the reason that the government decided to go down this route was to improve our air quality. Now the independent uh, TD for Kerry 
Michael Ely Ray, he's come out and he says he believes that uh, when he heard the results of this survey, he believes that people who cut turf or who cut timber to heat themselves and to heat their homes and to keep their boilers going, he says they're perfectly entitled to do it. He said nothing will ever change his opinion on this. And he went on to say that he supports the right of people who want to carry on using these the methods that they've used their fathers have used it, their grandfathers have used it and their forefathers have used it and he doesn't see any reason why people shouldn't be allowed uh, to do it. And he went so far as to say, we're not living in Russia. We're living in a free nation. So he doesn't want anybody dictating to the good people of rural Ireland what they can and can't burn in their fires. Now, turf has been used to heat homes for He's right. It's been there for hundreds of uh, years. And under the current laws, because there was some changes to the current laws and under the current laws, people can still use turf from their own bog, but they can only use it in their own fires or they can give it to to neighbours and friends, but they can't go on and sell it on commercially. Uh, And so therefore they can't make any money out of it. It can just be used to give heat uh, to their own and to their loved ones. And Michael Healy Ray is fearing that the government's next step will be to ban that and ban the traditional heating methods altogether, that they'll even stop people who own a bog from cutting the turf and burning it in their own fires. And he says, I know the Green Party would like to make it against the law if they could, but they haven't been able to do so yet. But he fears that it could happen into the uh, future. And his fellow rural uh, TD, uh, independent TD for Tipperary, Matty McGrath, he says the banning of the sale of turf, he says it's absolutely madness. Rural independent TDs are not alone, though, in their anger at the controversial policy because this study and survey that's out from the Environmental Protection Agency shows one in three Irish people agree that turf, coal and oil should continue to be used as a heating uh, method. Now, other climate policies are just as unpopular. For example, higher taxes on petrol and diesel cars, that was opposed by 36% of people, while the same proportion disagreed with reducing the number of cattle in the country. But, you know, when you're looking at surveys, you can read surveys, you can twist surveys around and read them another way. And I thought, you know, the Department of the Environment jumped straight away on this survey and says, OK, while you're talking about the EPA study saying, you know, a third of people are opposed to a ban on smoky fuels. The opposite side of that third is the two thirds of people in Ireland who support climate policies and who support the banning of peat, coal and oil uh, for home heating uh, purposes. So a bigger number of people are in favour of the ban of smoky fuels than the third who are uh, against it. And I take it it really is one of those issues where there is a huge, huge rural divide because it's people in rural areas who either own their own bog or have access to the cutting down of trees. They're the ones, obviously, who want to keep it going because it's a, a much cheaper way for them to heat their homes. Whereas if you're living in an urban area, if you're living in in large town or a city and you don't have access to a bog or to timber cutting down uh, trees, you can see why those people would be uh, completely against uh, smoky fuels. 0818 103 103. Bernie's taking your calls. You can text or WhatsApp us this morning to 0862 103. 103. This week's uh, this week on our hours to protect, which we broadcast tomorrow at about eleven forty-five. We're going to hear about the worst effects of climate change, and we're looking at it very much from a Cork perspective. 
two uh, homeowners from Glanmire tell their stories after being badly hit by the recent flooding and also that wonderful good news story from East Cork from Joe's Farm Crisps where the crop of beetroot for food production was saved from the elements and that was saved thanks to the kindness of uh, volunteers not just from the area uh, the uh, Sandra Burns told us earlier on in the week they came from all over uh, Munster which was really uh, terrific. So more of that tomorrow on our Hours to Protect uh, feature. And just to like say huge congratulations to all of the winners at the Irish Journalism Awards. They were presented yesterday but I was particularly glad to see that the Irish Examiner's tribute to the late Vicky Phelan that picked up the award for the front page of the year at the Journalism Awards uh, yesterday. You uh, will remember it was this month last year that uh, all of the papers, obviously the day after the news that Vicky Phelan had died, all of the papers were running with tributes uh, to her. But the one I think that shone out for me was the Irish Examiner because they featured a very large black and white photograph of uh, Vicky Phelan and it was above an article that just had uh, thank you uh, Vicky and it was an, and uh, actually coincidentally, and this really was a coincidence that was actually published uh, on the 15th of November 2022 the day after Vicky passed and the award was handed out yesterday on the 15th of November 2023 so exactly a year uh, later a year on from that headline and that front page uh, article they pick up the award so well done but congratulations to all the uh, winners and let's all send positivity and prayers and good health wishes to uh, Shane McGowan, the fairy tale of New York uh, legend. His wife has asked for love and prayers from fans. Uh, she's been sharing ha- heartbreaking photo of the singer using, he has to use a breathing apparatus and he really is looking unwell. I saw the pictures that go up on social media during the week. He's battling a dangerous brain uh, condition. Of course, Shane McGowan, lead singer with the Pogues. He's been in intensive care now for months. That was after he got diagnosed with viral encephalitis last year. But his wife, the journalist and the author, Victoria Mary Clark, she thanked people who've offered support to the couple at their time of need. And she's been regularly updating fans of uh, Shane uh, McGowan on his condition and his long running health struggle. But he looks very, very unwell. So thoughts and prayers with uh, Shane McGowan because Shane McGowan is one of those people in a couple of weeks time will be mentioning him so much because of he probably has one of the most popular Christmas songs in this country, Fairy Tale of New York. 0818 103 103. Bernie's taking your calls. You can text or WhatsApp us to 0862 103 103. Email Patricia now with your story or comment. Cork today at c103.ie. Cork Today on C103. Now, last week on the programme, we spoke about the crisis facing our primary schools with over 800 teaching posts outstanding this year. Well, today it's the turn of secondary schools because the Teachers Union of Ireland have revealed in a survey uh, that shows two thirds of secondary schools have un filled vacancies to talk about the effect it's having. I'm joined by David Waters and David is the TUI president. Good morning to you, David. Hi there, Patricia. How are you getting on? I'm getting on great, thank you. And thank you for taking our call this morning. Have you ever seen the situation so bad for schools simply trying to recruit teachers? No, uh, this is unprecedented levels. Now, I have to say, we have been warning this is going to happen for the past 10 years. I mean, it's it's not a, a sudden 
crisis or anything like that. The, the writing was on the wall for a long time and we've been telling the, the department and the government yeah, over 10 years, maybe even longer, that this is on the card with the way they're doing things. Um, and unfortunately, now we have the results where you know, 90% of uh, schools are facing recruitment and retention difficulties. And I think the most stark um, result of our survey was only 1% of principals out of the people surveyed thought the department was doing enough to alleviate the crisis. So that, I think, is wow. pretty damning. Wow. OK, talk, uh, talk to me about the practicalities. What, firstly, what are the subjects with the highest number of vacancies? So you're looking at the practical subjects like your construction, uh, metalwork, engineering, and then maths, of course, as well. Uh, it seems to be extremely difficult to get anyone to teach. Now, look, there's a variety of reasons for this. I mean, obviously... With the more practical subjects like construction, there are other options for people who are qualified in that in industry so they have, I suppose, more options than myself. I'm a history and English teacher. Um, I, I, I can teach history and English, but another industry at my skills probably can't transfer as easily. Um, so they're the kind of prime subjects. And, of course, then maths is a core subject that everyone is going to have to do. So uh, we need an awful lot of them. So and of course they, their skills can transfer to other industries as well so they're the ones that are the most acute at the moment but it is across the board How do schools cope if they don't have adequate teachers for a particular subject? Well it's very difficult I mean you can imagine the stress this causes uh, students especially if they're in exam years and suddenly now they have no teacher to deliver the latter part of the course I mean you were relying on an awful lot of goodwill uh, an awful lot of principals and deputies have to try to fill in the uh, the breach step into the breach and fill the gap but I mean this, this is far from ideal you're really talking about schools being at the pin of their collar and to, to be honest with you an awful lot of them are going to have to get second year PME students and the PME now is the professional masters in education so that's the teacher training program yeah. and that was one year for the majority of the time in 2014 they made it two years um, which has an awful lot of problems and in the TUI one of our key measures is to reduce that back to, to one year because one it's unaffordable and you're excluding people with say industry experience who can't save up enough to kind of do the two years but and what was sorry? What was the wisdom of extending it to two years? There was uh, a study done, which has been fairly widely discredited, um, about literacy and numeracy skills, and it was kind of a bit of a panic reaction. Um, now we've always been against it, and an awful lot of parties, including an awful lot of principals, think it, it's a ludicrous decision. I mean, myself, I, I did it in one year in 2012. Um, I don't know how the, the minister did it, but she, she was a teacher at one point. Yeah. I imagine she did it in one year as well. I mean, I'm a perfectly adequate as someone, someone who does it in two, in, in, in two years. And, it, and, and is it true, David, that some schools, I mean, this situation is so bad that some schools receive zero applications when they advertise the teaching post? Yeah. So uh, <laughs> The mind like, boggles on that. Yeah, that's about 77% from the survey. I mean, that that's unbelievable. I mean, the teachers aren't literally there. And what we would be arguing, say, with that halving of the PME, you would release 1,400 teachers into the system immediately. So if that was brought down to one year, all those second-year students could come right into the system. And already, you were asking me earlier, how are schools coping? Well, they're already kind of recruiting these second-year PME students to kind of fill in the gaps, but they can't give them proper timetables. So, like, there's there's a real logic 
in getting this back to one year, it's not going to solve all of it. We've uh, we've given lots of other suggestions. But it, it will go some way to, to, yeah. so, to solving it. And I'm also thinking, David, this is really unfair on a, a pupil who might want to study a certain subject and that can't be made available through no fault of, of the school. I mean, there will be some schools who just have to drop a subject like oh, construction absolutely. studies because we don't have anyone to teach it. I mean, it's it happened in uh, in Dublin. We've had lots of reports of construction. It's just, it's gone now. And you could imagine if, you know, anyone who goes to school, you'll know you're from your own school days. You don't like every subject. And it's the one or two that kind of give you any kind of graph for what you might go on mm. to in, in the future. And you are completely, uh, I suppose, you're isolating a, a, a huge cohort of students from uh, the opportunity to experience those subjects. So, I mean... It's a disaster, really. And unfortunately, we've seen so much inaction from the department. I mean, another suggestion we have to get more teachers on board is we have an awful lot of teachers who are in Dubai and abroad who've gone for better terms and conditions, and they won't come home if you've been in Dubai for 10 years. At the moment, the department doesn't recognize any of that service. So when you come back, you're starting from scratch in Ireland. And you won't come back if you're going to be impoverished. It's just not enticing. We need to make the profession... Uh, you know, attractive to people if we're going to get more teachers in. And and I'm assuming, as with a lot of other uh, industry, uh, the housing crisis is also oh, problem, particularly for places like Dublin. I mean, <coughs> if you could get a job in Dublin, but you couldn't afford to live there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the housing um, catastrophe, whatever you want to call it, has affected everything, and teaching is, is no different. I mean, uh, we have an, also an extra crisis in that most people, they like they get time hours. They don't get full-time jobs when they start. Only about 30% of teachers start on full hours. So because of that, you not only are you getting, might get a job in a place where rent is really unaffordable, but you mightn't have a full salary to even have a chance to be able to afford that. And it, that seems to be replicated right across the country. I mean, I think uh, the Examiner had an article only this week about rents in Cork, rents in Galway, Waterford. And they're all skyrocketing, skyrocketing as well as Dublin being, I suppose, absolute... The uh, real pinch point of it. Now, I know that the, you know, the minister, um, Norma Foley, uh, she's come out saying, you know, we're doing everything that we can. And she was pointing to the budget last month and she said that contained uh, a range of measures to address teacher supply issues. She's, and she quoted such as financial incentives for newly qualified teachers graduating next year and the restoration of middle management posts in school. She said the supply of teacher graduates also increased by about 20% since 2018. So that in, in paper all looks good, but it doesn't seem to be reflecting what's happening on the ground in schools. No, well, like, just to address a couple of things, like the €2,000 rebate for PME students, I mean, that's welcome. I'm, I'm not going to dismiss that. But it probably costs about 16000 to do. So, like, because it's a two-year programme, I mean, they're astronomical costs. And whilst that might be, I suppose, alleviate some financial difficulties for people, it doesn't address the whole issue of making it more attractive or releasing teachers quicker into the system. So uh, on that issue, uh, I I don't really think it is going to address the issue in in any large capacity. Um, On on other things like, uh, what was the second one you read out there? The the second one she said was the, um, from next year, restoration of middle management posts. Oh, yeah. So... um, Look, we welcome posts, but posts are nowhere near the post of middle management. You know, like your year heads and all that kind of stuff. We need we need them dramatically in schools. I mean, the pressure on principals and and 
and even uh, you know the opportunity for for progression for teachers is absolutely necessary. But they're so minimal what we're getting. I mean, you're talking about four to five hundred posts for second level schools, and we've asked management. Is that to do with the increase in demographics, or are these new? Or we've asked the department. Sorry, is this due to the increase in demographics, or are they new posts? And we haven't got an answer yet. So I mean, they may come back to us and say they're new, but at the moment they don't seem to to know, which I would be quite concerned about. And plus, the the percentages of posts that were available pre crash levels, you're talking around fifty or up and sorry up to around 50% of uh, teachers would have some sort of extra responsibility and we are absolutely nowhere, nowhere near. near. Yeah, might be it's in the ne- high 20s. It's never been like replaced. That. And her point about the the supply of teaching graduates has increased by almost 20% I, since 2018. But I would immediately say, say to her, a lot of those graduates are just getting on the plane because they're getting better terms and conditions in other countries. You've answered it for me. That, that's absolutely it. I mean, we have an incredible teaching stock in this country. I mean, for the finances that are put into it, we, we rank the lowest on uh, GDP investment in post-primary. Like, we're less than 1%, and yet all of our scores with, uh, you know, educationally are really high. We're generally just below the Scandinavian nation. So we got pretty good bang for our book for the minimal funding that we put in because we've really good teachers. And, of course, the rest of the world know that, and there's lots of recruitment companies from Australia, Britain, Dubai, all these places come in, and they want us because we have such a great reputation. And if they're well-trained, they go, well, we can offer you a much better salary, much better conditions that the department don't offer at all. So, I mean, they need to get their act together on an awful lot of things, but making teaching more attractive and more accessible to people is what will help alleviate this. OK, and you're proving following our chat with the primary schools last uh, last week. It's across both primary and secondary. Listen, David, uh, I'll leave it there. Thank you for that. And thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks very much. Good morning to you. David Walters there, who is the Teachers Union of Ireland President. 0818 103 103. Bernie's taking your calls. You can text your WhatsApp to 0862. 103 103 103 Good morning, Patricia, and good morning to your listeners. And good to have you along. Now, explain in, uh, in, I suppose, in, in pounds, shillings and pence, uh, what are the maximum payments rising to here? Yes, Patricia, well, I suppose it is good news that, uh, I suppose, grants for safety tank improvements uh, or replacements have been increased from €5,000 up now to a maximum of €12,000 from the 1st of January next year. So, as you know, a lot of, I suppose, um, Houses around the countryside in particular have their own individual septic tanks and a lot of them are, are, are probably very old and uh, may not even be proper septic tanks like back in the day. Uh, you might have just a chamber made of blocks, etc. that that was put into an old house uh, that is containing the, the sewerage uh, from that property. So there's a number of properties uh, right across Cork County and right across the country that are in need for a serious upgrade uh, to protect our water sources. And uh, I suppose the grant up to now has been up to a maximum of 
€5,000. And we've, uh, I suppose, proven evidence now that a lot of those septic tank upgrades will cost a lot, a lot more than that. And the average is really is about eight to €9,000. Yeah, to, uh, and, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming the cost has been an issue for some people who know that they need to either do a repair or a replace of their septic tank, but they simply don't have the money. And like there was a process back in 2013, if you recall, Patricia, where we had to register our tanks uh, with protectourwater.ie and, and a number of people, I suppose, who registered their septic tank. And if they were inspected by the local authority, were eligible for a grant. And unfortunately, some people missed, some people missed that deadline. And, um, you know, for whatever reason, um, you know, and then when they applied for a grant, they weren't eligible. So that barrier of registering before the 1st of February 2013 is being removed now. Um, so we, I'd encourage anyone that hasn't registered their safety tank before to register it now. And as the, um, you know, the support is there now for you to, to I suppose, do up or renew your safety tank uh, if you know it's an issue. And, and a lot of people have been coming to us, Patricia, yeah. proactively and has been telling us that there is an issue with their safety tank and that they are, you know, um, unfortunately, you know, infecting the water sources that are nearby. And uh, I suppose this is a great opportunity now for them to, uh, I suppose, to, to get, um, you know, grant assistance towards that. But, and, and talk to me about the type of problems that a defective septic tank can actually cause in an area. Yeah, we can't kind of confidence a number of septic tanks every single year and we're focusing uh, on really the high priority areas, which is the areas alongside water courses, uh, alongside protected areas in particular. So, as I said, we haven't got around to doing an awful lot of inspections, but the inspections that have been done to date are very simple ones that they haven't been desludged, which means in simple terms haven't been emptied for many, many years. So a lot of people don't even know where their septic tank is. It doesn't cause an issue, so it only would have caused an issue that their people find and say, well, well let's but in the majority of cases, 80 or 85% is just that it hasn't been desludged properly in a number of years. So we'd encourage people to, to get out there and to contact the local contractors and to get their uh, safety tanks desludged. And other, other courses could be that there could be a no soakaway office. Uh, so in an arbor septic tank, you'd have a septic tank and you'd have a soakaway off uh, for the, 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 the water. And um, so, like, that might need to be renewed. Or indeed, as I said earlier, there might be uh, a proper septic tank put in first day because a lot of the houses that were built probably in the 40s, 50s and 60s had only kind of what was known as um, a cement block type tank. Yeah. And those, those are not appropriate anymore. So, like, the people there now that provide safety tanks and uh, wastewater units that could provide uh, that and the grant is available for that as well. Yeah, and if it's, that's near a water course, it can be causing problems not just for you but for your neighbours. Well, indeed, and it might you might it might be affecting your own water course because in many cases, particularly in, in the countryside, uh, in one site you could have a house that would have a safety tank in one element of the site, and you could have a domestic well providing water to your house on another side of the site, and with, uh, unknown to yourself, you might be infecting that supply. So it's crucially important, I suppose, that people are aware of that. There's a website or a map available on the housinggov.ie website as well that you can now put in your air coat and you can see if you're in these priority areas. And if you are in these priority areas, you can automatically apply to Cork County Council or any other local authority across the country for your safety tank to be inspected and for a report to be issued and to see what requirements are there to, to get it renewed. OK, in order to apply for one of these grants, do you firstly have to have an inspection by the local authority? Yes, indeed. So or in t- the intention is that I suppose the, the local authority would do an inspection and an issue 
um, I suppose the client with a report outlining what works that needs to be done. So I suppose that alleviates um, the person from hiring their own person to do the report yeah. and paying for that. Uh, but it also ensures that the local authority can keep uh, a record of that going forward. So they've done a number of inspections for the last number of years. They're quite small in the overall position. I think last year we only did 150 inspections, but that is, that is going to increase over the years to come. Um, but I suppose we're now proactively, I suppose, promoting that since the grants have been uh, increased because it was, it was very difficult before when people could only get a maximum of 5,000 euros. And if the report outlines that there was um, a requirement for an upgrade and it was going to cost 9,000 euros, and some people don't have the finances to do that, you know. So at yeah, least and, now and, they have and the I know over the years, I mean, there were people who failed these inspections and didn't do anything about it because they didn't have the money. Yeah, and that, that was very difficult and I've had many of those uh, into my constituency clinics as well where the report has come back from Cork County Council outlining the works that need to be done and unfortunately they, they were in excess of the grant available which is 5,000 euros. So not every, um, I suppose, job will be as expensive as 12,000 euros but at least now we have the option of, of going up to 12,000 euros of a grant. Yes. Um, okay, to so, so if somebody listening, John Paul, knows that there is an issue with their septic tank do they need to apply to the local authority to say, look, you need to come out and inspect my septic tank? Is that how it works? Yes, indeed. So like, if you're in a high priority action area, which is kind of one of the, the, the statuses that uh, are associated with the EPA and the local authority waters programme, uh, and as I said earlier, there's a website there that you can just simply put in your air code and it comes up with a map whether you're eligible. Um, are not uh, in the current format. And in the most cases, particularly in North Cork, if you're in the vicinity of the River Allo or the River Albeg, for example, those are very, very high-status um, uh, catchment areas because they're very close to very protected water sources. Uh, so people in those areas would be automatically eligible so they need to contact the local authority. The local authority will inspect uh, the septic tank and issue you with a report. In and then, to then once you get the, the report, you can apply for the grant and, and get the uh, the work done. I was looking up figures uh, yesterday just to see, you know, how many uh, septic tanks there are, and they reckon there's about half a million. So there's there's a lot of septic tanks uh, in this country. But but the, the flip side of that is there was only one thousand one hundred and forty three inspected last year uh, out of the half a million. So it isn't just Cork County that is having a problem doing inspections. If if we if we're serious about this, and it looks like the minister is by upping the the level of grants. The inspections really need to increase. Oh, absolutely. And I have no doubt they will now. But I suppose like the feedback and in fairness to the minister and the government involved, they've listened to the feedback because I'm not the only councillor that has been, um, I suppose, discussing this and promoting this in the last number of years, uh, like where people have come to us and said, right, they have an inspection and um, they need to upgrade their slippage tank, but they don't have the finances to do it. Um, and it was clear from first day that the grant wasn't enough. And with the rise of inflation, etc., like that has gone on in the last number of years, Patricia, uh, we're very lucky now to have that in the position uh, to offer it up to 12,000 euros per grant. So the, the, the intention, I would think, is that the septic tank inspections are going to increase. Uh, but it's also, you know, you can self-refer as well now. So if you're in that high-status catchment area, as I said earlier, that you can self-refer to the local authority and they will uh, arrange an inspection for you. Okay, that's, but I would, that's certainly good. That certainly is, is welcome to quiz. That wasn't always the case. No. So 
like lo- before you had to wait for the local authority to inspect and as I said we inspected I think 139 140 uh, said eggs last year which is a very small amount in the terms of the overall car county um, but now that the grants have increased I think it's imperative that the, the inspections increase so we offer the opportunity of people to avail the grant as quickly as possible Okay and you mentioned about registering and, and how do people register if they haven't registered to date? Yes, so there's a website, protectorwater.ie, and you can still register your septic tank um, on that. Um, so I, I'd encourage people that haven't registered to date uh, to continue to register. But the barrier now of, uh, of accepting a grant or being eligible for a grant uh, was prior to registering before the 1st of February 2013. That's been removed. That's that been, been removed. removed which and, is a very welcomed uh, move, just because a lot of people uh, didn't see the point in registering if they weren't going to be um, eligible for a grant. So I think yeah, because you know, I, I was going to ask if you any understanding of why people d- haven't been registering. No, well, I think the initial thing was to try and get some understanding because there, there is, I suppose, pressure from the European Union, there's sort of pressure uh, from our own government in Ireland to improve the water sources that we have uh, in, in our country. And as you know, from previous conversations in relation to the CAP programme and in relation to many other uh, items uh, or wastewater treatment plants that are discharging uh, into the local rivers and and and, uh, and, um, and seas, that is crucially important that we do upgrade um, um, uh, the, uh, the wastewater treatment plants to make sure um, that I suppose we do protect our water. Uh, but so there was, an, uh, I suppose, an encouragement to register before a certain date, but that date is well gone. So we needed to improve that, we needed to update that, and I'm glad the government and the minister has done that now. Okay, and as you say, it's, it's, it can really protect your own family, but your, your neighbours uh, as well. Okay, listen, uh, protectourwater.ie, if you haven't registered, it is imperative now that you do register. Uh, but also, the, uh, somebody says, where can you go for a self-referral? Is it, wait, is it just Cork County Council you get on to? Yep, so you ring the Environmental Department of Cork County Council, which, uh, next, you can go to, directly to them through the, the switchboard at 021 427 That's 021-427-6891. Okay, always a pleasure to have you on the programme, John paul Thank you for that and have a good, good morning, day. Good morning, Thanks for that. Bye-bye. That is uh, Fine Gael North Cork Councillor John Paul O'Shea on uh, the new terms and conditions when it comes to septic tank grants, but from next year increasing from 5,000 to 12,000 and hopefully that will allow people who've had a problem with their septic tank to get it sorted. 0818-103-103. Bernie's taking your calls. Anything you want to share with us this morning, we'd love to hear from you. You can text our WhatsApp 0862-103-103. Some of your thoughts uh, coming in, uh, particularly with regard uh, to uh, emissions from uh, cars and that whole uh, issue that I dealt with earlier about the public being divided on a ban on smoky fuels. Well, not quite divided. A third of people in this country says that there shouldn't be a ban on smoky fuels. But the flip of that is more people think there should be a complete and utter uh, ban. Uh, Willie's in Yall. He points out that every single city in this country is jammed up with cars. Uh, many stuck in those cars are students going to and from college. Are all of those cars not polluting the air? Uh, Willie suggests that we need to go back to having more localised colleges. 
so that young people then could remain living at home during their college years and perhaps even cycle to college and he says cycle to school listen Willie whenever we mention cycling to school we get people saying you know when you hear people say oh back in my day we cycled and we walked to school talk to parents of young children today and they'll tell you that the roads are just so busy and so dangerous it is they would be too fearful to allow their children to cycle or walk to a school but local colleges yeah we certainly take it would it would kill two birds with one stone because the problem that we have with students trying to find accommodation uh, in some of the major cities is a real, real problem every year. Tim says, I live in a rural area on a farm and I've noticed the smoke when we burn coal, whatever type of coal it is, smoke-free coal or the smoky uh, coal. When I'm out in the yard adjacent to the house, the smoke from the chimney is terrible. What damage is this doing to our lungs and to our general health? That's from uh, Tim. But I wonder how regularly do you get your chimney cleaned and if your chimney is cleaned at least once a year, does that stop the amount of smoke or is it literally just coming from the fuel that you are burning? So do I take it from that, uh, Tim, that you would be saying get rid of fossil fuels completely because, yes, we do have a problem with air quality. And Kevin, listening to us in Ennis on smoky fuels, said, we hear nothing about the pollution from air travel. Why don't they double the tax on aviation uh, fuel? And uh, yeah, there isn't, they, they don't get the same carbon tax on aviation fuel that we get on our diesel and on our petrol. But uh, actually, uh, Kevin, I did read something earlier. This is from the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland. They are trying to come up with ways for cleaner air and uh, obviously to make us uh, live in a more sustainable country. And they're suggesting a number of uh, things. And one of them actually has to do with air travel. But they're, they're looking at things like having a boiler scrappage scheme. The idea would be you'd scrap your boiler and then instead you would be you get some kind of a grant, I'm assuming, is what their suggestion would be, and you'd install electric heat pumps. They also are suggesting things like if you drive an SUV, anybody driving an SUV, there should be an additional tax that's to discourage people from buying what they say are fuel uh, uh, guzzlers. Uh, But they're also talking about looking at limiting the number of flights uh, people take. They're looking at things like flight restrictions. Uh, They're talking about a ban on new data centres. We know how much energy the data centres uses. They want to see a halt to the expansion of existing large energy using industry and they're saying all of these items should be uh, considered and the recommendations come as figures show our our dependency in this country on fossil fuels is not reducing fast enough. Oil, gas and coal provide 86% of all energy needs for transport, for heating our homes and for power last year. So Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland, the SEAI, says that the most ambitious and optimistic scenario will still leave this country between 57% to 68% dependent on fossil fuels and that's by 2030 and that's the most optimistic uh, scenario. I mean, if we are already uh, in the high, if we're already at 86, I cannot see in seven years getting it down to 57 or even anywhere near to 68%. uh, So they're saying because of that, we're overshooting targets. That means we are breaching legally binding carbon uh, taxes. And of course, at the same time, we are emitting dangerous levels of greenhouse uh, gases. Now, 
wind and solar, they do provide almost 40% of the country's electricity. So that is, there is a bit of good news uh, in this. But this 60%, the rest then, is mainly generated from gas. Home heating is still overwhelmingly dependent on oil, gas and coal. And of course, all of our transport is mostly powered by petrol and diesel. So the SEAI are saying only immediate and significant corrective action uh, would give us any chance of breaking the grip that we, ha- that we have in this country on fossil fuels and he says time is simply not on our side. The SEAI the National Energy's projection report which is just out, it says that there is significant momentum in certain areas of climate action in particular things like renewable electricity the household retrofits that are going on and of course we, we, we are seeing an increase in people buying electric vehicles but he says it simply isn't enough. When the, with the population population growing and the economy expanding. He said the reductions in fossil fuel used and the associated emissions achieved in this area will not make up for the increase which has been driven by the higher energy demand. And we have a higher energy demand because we have a population that's growing. The report out from Sustainable Energy Ireland raises doubts that the extra renewable electricity from wind and solar farms will be rolled out fast enough to meet the demands. It says the electrification of home heating that would result in a quick and lasting reduction in fossil fuel and emission. But straight away, that's a costly thing to decide today. I'm no longer going to use home heating oil. I'm no longer going to use coal uh, or other kind of fossil fuels. I'll, you know, make my house... I'll, I'll go the electrification route and get in heat pumps. <laughs> Dear, how much that's going to uh, uh, cost. Um, but the, the SEAI are also pointing out, though, that most homeowners only consider replacing their oil or gas bo- boiler when it breaks down. And then usually what happens when they break down, they'll just replace it with like for like because they already have the cost of the boiler to replace and they're not even going to look at going down the route of a heat pump. So the, in fairness to the SEAI, they are saying incentives must be designed and those incentives would encourage planned heat pump installation and they said they could include uh, targeted marketing campaigns and that's where they're coming up with this some kind of a boiler scrappage uh, scheme. So you give up your boiler if you would agree to go with an electric heat pump and there'd be some kind of grant aid going uh, with it. At the SEAI say a clear date for a ban on new Fossil fuel boiler sales must also be set. They're calling for more funding for the energy transition and said brave decisions need to be uh, made. And the report uh, says that increased spending must be matched with stronger regulation requiring the heaviest emitters to start reducing their emissions. Whether things are straight away, think like the data centre, are to scale back operations until such time as they can comply. The SEAI say we need to consider increased carbon taxes on high polluting luxury vehicles like your SUVs. And they've also suggested that could the government not consider some limits on air travel until decarbonisation actions uh, take effect. So I wonder how people would feel if the government moved in uh, to do something like that and being told that there's only a certain amount of air travel you could do every year, you know, that every household would be limited to, I don't know, every person would be limited to no more than 10 hours of air travel. 
travel and once you've booked your air travel and once you hit your 10 hours of air travel, whatever it would be, you wouldn't be allowed to book another flight for the remainder of that year and then the limits would uh, kick in again the next year. I wonder how people would feel about that. And the SUVs. Now, we do often hear people complain about the number of SUVs that are out at the school gates. We often get complaints in uh, about them. And in fairness, a number of people do point out that many of them are gas guzzling. So if you opt to buy or drive uh, an SUV, should you be facing, say, higher carbon tax uh, charges? Your thoughts welcomed 0818 103 103. Bernie's taking your calls. You can text our uh, WhatsApp to 0862 103 103. C103 Jobs. Truck drivers are wanted. It's for a multi-drop rigid our Arctic deliveries. Now it's across Cork City and County and it's with Tria Oil Products. Contact Patrick on 086 Industrial electricians are wanted for projects in Blackpool, Bishopstown, Model Farm Road areas. CVs please to jobs at hamiltonfrench.com. The Donkey Sanctuary in Lascara, they've got a vacancy for a veterinary nurse. CVs please to joanne.nevin at thedonkeysanctuary.ie. And Ingredient Solutions, they're based in Boherbui. They're looking for a finance administrator and a customer services rep. Email your up-to-date CV to Esther at ingredientsolutions.net and please note the closing date for your applications is the 30th of November. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. Text or WhatsApp Patricia with your comment. 086 Today on C103. The annual drink aware barometer reveals that 59% of Irish adults consume alcohol at least once a week. But there is some evidence that a growing number of people are trying to make positive changes to their drinking habits. Dervil O'Brien is CEO of Drink Aware, and Dervil joins me this morning. Good morning to you, Dervil. Good morning, Patricia. Great to be here. And lovely to talk to you as well. Now, the at least once a week drinking figure at 59%. In yep. your opinion, is that simply too high? Um, well, it is very high, and weekly alcohol consumption is showing an upper trend since COVID. And this year, it's at its highest since inception at 59%. It's been at over half of all adults for four years in a row, but this year it's at its peak at 59%. So effectively, six in 10 adults are drinking alcohol on at least a weekly basis. And, and that compares with them um, in 2018, for example. 44% of people wow. drinking on at least a weekly basis. Yeah, so it's a rise of 15 percentage points in five years, which is significant. And what do you think it was about the pandemic? Was it just boredom? Had people drinking? Well, you know, we've, we've certainly seen at-home drinking has become very normalised uh, since COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, people were certainly drinking at home uh, pre-COVID, but it became very, very normalised. I suppose they've nowhere else to go for a start. Mm. You know, um, as part of our research, we look at the occasions when people drank alcohol in the last 30 days. And again, the top three occasions were all based in the home. So with 33% saying, you know, with family over mealtimes, that kind of thing. But the potentially worrying figure around at-home drinking is that 32% of drinkers are now drinking at home alone at least once a week. And that's um, a significant increase pre-pandemic when it would have been around 18%. 
So and and is there also a danger, Dervla, when you're drinking at home that you might actually drink more than you would drink if you were out in a social setting? I mean, for example, if you're if you're drinking spirits at home, very few people are going to measure out the pub Absolutely. level of, of spirits. So it's, you know, and we all know of relatives who are a little bit heavy handed when they're pouring you a, a drink, for example. But is there a danger that we drink more, we would drink more than what we perhaps even th- realise we're drinking? Absolutely. The, the, the centrality of at-home drinking as well as, you know, specific practices associated with drinking at home are key to understanding consumption because when you're at home, you're free pouring. And um, people need to be aware of, you know, what a, what safe consumption is, what binge drinking is, what a standard drink is. And people are not necessarily aware. So, you know, binge drinking is defined as consuming six standard drinks in one sitting. And it's important to know what a standard drink actually is. So typically it would be a half a pint of beer or a hundred mil glass of wine, not a huge glass of wine, a hundred mil glass of wine. That's quite small or a pub measure of spirits. So that means someone who consumes, say, three pints or, or more in one sitting is binge drinking. And that's often a huge surprise to people when they hear it for the first time. Yeah, because I think when people think of binge drinking, they think of young people out on an absolute bender and they would never consider sitting at home drinking a bottle of wine on a Friday night. Technically, you're binge drinking with that bottle of wine, but they would never associate the two. Exactly. And, you know, for those of your listeners who don't know, you know, what the weekly guidelines are, you know, it's less than 17 standard drinks spread over a week for a man with at least two alcohol-free days and less than 11 standard drinks spread out over a week with at least two alcohol-free days for a woman. You know, so remember, these are not targets, these are guidelines, but it's the spreading out over a week and people just need to really be aware of that. And in your survey, did people admit their binge drinking? You know, they did, and it's the second year in a row that over half of drinkers say they've engaged in binge drinking at least once in the past few days. But I suppose the more... Concerning figure is we're seeing an increased prevalence of people who typically binge when they drink. So not just once in the past 30 days, but typically binge. So in 2020, for example, that was one in five people said they typically binged when they were drinking. But that figure is now up to one in four people, over 26%, who say they typically binge when they engage in drinking. So that's definitely something we need to try and address. And is the cost of living pressures that we're constantly talking about, Dervil, on this programme and indeed other media outlets, is that not stopping people from buying alcohol, certainly stopping people from going out? Well, again, it's probably um, uh, reflected in the at-home drinking patterns. And the data is also showing us that almost one in four adults, 24%, are now putting alcohol in the supermarket trolley at least once a week. So despite the cost of living pressures, um, you know, people are still consuming alcohol to that level. And minimum unit pricing, has any of that helped? And, and you know, and in supermarkets now, you've got to go out of your way to get to the off-license section. Has any of that helped? It's, it's very simple. Minimum unit pricing only came in last year. I mean, obviously, all we should use all tools in our box to, to, to address this. Um, but certainly, um, it's a bit soon to say how effective that's been. But information and really people understanding and being you know, mindful of what they're drinking is really effective in changing behaviour and information is power. So people really need to start there and address their own drinking patterns. But there are positive shoots as well. Um, You know, our research is showing that people definitely have positive intentions and many do want to change their drinking habits. So, for example, 
more than uh, one in three people, 36% say they would now like to drink alcohol less. And that's the highest um, such incidence in that figure uh, from the start of our barometer series. And this is the seventh year we've been running it. So, so in 2020, that was 24%. So that was one in four. So, you know, there's positive shoots. Yeah, uh, and that's people themselves yes. admitting, I am drinking too much yeah, or too often. And wanting to drink less. And, and you know, in addition to, say, 36% saying they'd like to drink less, you know, a number like 41% say they've actually made small positive changes to their drinking habits in the past day. So that's positive. And, you know, in addition to that, um, people are, are, are showing that um, if they knew, knew what the HSE low-risk guidelines were, were, that it would make a difference to, to them moderating their own drinking. In fact, they find that the, the low-risk guidelines are actually considered reasonable by over half of adults now. And that's the highest figure um, since the inception of our research also. So, yes. Um, there are definitely positive shoots, and we need to build on those. As and I, when I was reading through your report, I, I kind of took comfort from the fact that uh, the uh, the people you surveyed, the young among the young adult population, mm-hmm. a lot of young people are really sort of saying, "Yeah, this alcohol thing and doing uh, drinking too much is just mm-hmm. not good." Absolutely. I mean, you know, of those looking to drink less, it actually the sentiment peaked among young adults. So that's eighteen to twenty-four year olds. Over half of them, 54%, said they would like to drink less, with 57% of them saying they've made small positive changes to their drinking in the last days. So that's very positive. Um, and I think, you know, we also just need to acknowledge there is a cultural shift that's taking place. And, um, we, you know, people are definitely becoming more sober, curious, and, you know, mindful of their drinking, engaging in sober October or dry January, you know, and we should no longer assume or expect that everyone will want to drink, whether young or old, you know. And, you know, from the entirety of our research, 18% of adults are classified as non-drinkers. So of the survey, 82% have consumed alcohol in the past 30 days, with 18% abstaining completely. So there is a trend. And, you know, let's call a spade a spade. Nobody's been a killjoy here. Everybody, you know, likes mm-hmm. the idea of enjoying a, a, a little drink or whatever, but it's the abuse of alcohol. And I was only reading this morning, I mean, alcohol-associated harms cost the state €3.7 billion Euro a year. That's, I mean, that's a staggering figure. Absolutely. And, and that's why it's so important that people have the information and know what binge drinking is. Because if you're drinking faster than your liver's ability to process alcohol, you know, that, that, that's, that's the damage that you're doing. And it takes your liver an hour to process each standard drink you consume. So when you're binge drinking, you're increasing the likelihood of harming your physical and mental health, both short term and long term. It's associated with several different types of cancer. You know, it's associated with one in three breast cancer in Ireland is, is, is linked to, to alcohol. And then you have other issues like stomach disease, high blood pressure, you know, mental health issues, anxiety, depression, all that. Yeah, and then the social issues that come with uh, somebody who gets addicted to alcohol and entire families get uh, affected by it. Uh, a listener is wondering, what is Derviler's uh, view on the extension of the opening uh, hours? This is um, in the, 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 the sale of the alcohol bill that is uh, currently going through the doll and, and we could see nightclubs open until 6am in the morning. Look, um, I, we don't think that it's necessarily about the availability of alcohol. People are going to drink. You know, it's really what we're looking at are the passions and that people have the information and make informed decisions. Um, you know, and act responsibly, be it at 
whatever hour of the day that they consume alcohol. Yeah, to stop and think, to stop yeah, and, and think stop about what you're doing. Okay, listen, uh, Darvill, a great report as always. Thank you for that and uh, thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. Pleasure. Uh, good morning to you. Bye bye. That is Dervla O'Brien, and Dervla is CEO of Drink Aware. 0818 103 103. Bernie's taking your calls. You can text or WhatsApp to 0862 103 103. Email Patricia now with your story or comment. Cork today at c103.ie. Cork Today on C103. Now, tonight, it's part of the Cork International Film Festival. West Cork filmmaker Max Lacane will premiere his latest feature film, which is called Solitaire. And it was mainly filmed in an old house in Iries on the Bay Peninsula. And I should say, Max Lacane joins me this morning. Good morning to you, Max. Good morning. Thanks uh, for having me. Well, you're very welcome. Is it always nerve-wracking in advance of the premiere? of a new movie, to sit there and watch how other people are reacting to it? Um, yeah, I mean, when you make a movie, it's not really finished until it's been seen by an audience. You can see it as many times as you like yourself, but it's really when you're seeing it in a room full of people uh, that, it, that it comes alive and that you get the first impressions. Um, sometimes making a film can be a strange process. You get so involved in it, it almost feels like you're... Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Talking to yourself. And it's always <laughs> such a relief to get it out there and, and uh, yeah, get, get a reaction. And, and at a premiere, do you sit watching people or are you very much just focused on the screen and not looking at other people's reactions? Um, yeah, I generally focused on the screen. Oh, yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> I think it will be too nerve-wracking watching the other reactions and trying to second-guess so it'll the expression. So it'll be eyes staring at the screen tonight. Now, Solitaire, it's described as an unsettling ghost story. Can you give us a, a, an outline of the story? I can. I mean, the films I make are quite experimental and they don't necessarily follow traditional storytelling patterns, but there's definitely a story to this one. Um the way it's put together, it might sort of feel more like um, being lost in someone else's dream 
or you know sort of put together perhaps more like a poem than a traditional story but the story is um a brother comes home uh, to the family home which is now semi-derelict finds his sister dead and takes her body out to bury it and then finds that he can get back into the house um this and there's some strange entity in the house, a woman who's sort of part maternal, uh, but also in a way sort of quite childlike, um, almost a, a ghost character who's kind of just discovering the world for the first time as a child might. So it's very much um, a film of visual impressions, of textures, of atmospheres, uh, but there is a strong sense of haunting to it. Yeah, I, it's almost sending a shiver down my spine, even the way you are describing it. And what I'm really intrigued uh, about is the fact it's a wordless film. Is 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 that something that that you do a lot of? Uh, yes, yes, it is. Um, in some ways, I mean, I'm completely obsessed with film history, and I have many, many influences from different types of films made from all over the world. But somehow, silent film has always had a particular impact on me. Um, and I like the idea of going back to the origins of cinema and doing something that's just built from visuals and built from sound. Um, and in a way, it's perhaps almost more like music than, say, a play or, or a narrative. And I'm wondering from the actors and actress point of view, do they welcome the fact it's a wordless film and that there's no lines to be learned? But then yet, <laughs> I take it, their facial reactions are really important Absolutely, and just their presence. And I work in a way that's quite improvised. So when I come onto set, I have a good idea of what we need. But I allow the actors or the the, the various performers to walk, work it through in their own ways, and I like to see what they can bring to it. Um, and, you know, it can be more or less improvised depending on the performer and depending on the situation. But sometimes when you just let the performers go, uh, amazing things can happen. And the reason I'm using the word performer perhaps more than actors is that although I do sometimes work with trained actors and very fine actors, a lot of the time I also work with performance artists, musicians, even Ah. visual artists, people coming from different backgrounds. Um, And I find that they can bring um, a sort of an intuitive sense of performance to it, which perhaps a trained actor can't in the same way. No, that's a generalisation. Yeah, I know, I know. And, yeah. you know, and the fact that it, it, it is wordless, uh, you, you're, the, the sound then becomes very important. So who has created the sound for the film Solitaire? Well, I've been very lucky in that I'm working again with Karen Power, who's a Cork-based composer who has quite, quite a diverse repertoire. But what she's um, sort of particularly skilled and particularly focused on is a process of recording sounds um, which are present in nature or in, 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 in other sort of familiar surroundings, but recording them with microphones that pick up the frequencies which are inaudible to the human ear. And she brings these you know, up to audibility and then uses these as part of her compositions. And I think the whole sort of haunted nature of the work, which I do, chimes very nicely with the way Karen's bringing out you know, sounds which are there, which are always sort of hovering around, but we're not always aware of. So I'm wondering how that process works. You you film the scene that you want and then do you give it to her then and say, OK, put the music to that? Or how does that process work? Yeah, I mean, working with different people, it works slightly differently. But in the case of working with Karen, it, I edit the film and I give it to her and um, yeah, allow her to construct the sound completely. Um, I've done two feature films with her, I think, on the first one when she brought it back. 
I asked for two or three small changes, but on solid air, actually not one. Hey. Completely happy with what she, she nailed did. it. She absolutely she nailed, nailed it. it. Yeah. Okay, and as I mentioned in the introduction, it is it's mainly filmed in this. It's a, it's an old derelict house, obviously in Iris. Is it? Is that's where you filmed? When when did you film? Um, I filmed in the summer and into the autumn of uh, 2021. Um, no, uh, 2022. Sorry, I'm getting lost. Okay. And then edited, you know, throughout the rest of the year, and it was finished just at the, the start of this year completely. Um, it was shot between Iris, where we shot the interiors, and then um, an abandoned farm in County Waterford, where, where we shot the exteriors. And it's basically two locations, and they're supposed to be the inside and the outside of the one place. And did you walk around just looking for derelict properties and then said, yeah, that's perfect? No, this house um, was actually a place my mother lived for many years. And ah. I actually lived for a while. And she passed away in 2018. And, um, I mean, when when we say derelict, that's a little bit of an exaggeration. It's not quite that far gone. But nevertheless, any building, especially an old building, when it's been left empty for two or three years, it's astonishing the changes which can happen to it. So when I went into it, on, on, on one hand, it was quite a disturbing process, uh, just seeing the changes which had happened. But on the other hand, it was an absolute godsend and you could pay an art director thousands to come up with a set like that. You know, and and there it was already yeah. for you. I'm just thinking, was was that an emotional process, the fact that your mum has passed and this was the house that she'd lived in? Um, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a strange thing. It was quite emotional, but what really, um, I suppose, even more than that, Like, you know, we lived there for a number of years. My family has a particular history there, but it is a very old house. And going back into it, what was really striking was the extent to which our history had vanished. And there were so many sort of older histories, um, older ghosts, if you will, that had come to the foreground. Um, So it felt as if perhaps the overriding thing was this sense that, you know, when we'd been living there, sort of carrying on our lives and doing our things, there was all this in the background. and I, sh- I should probably say as well that um, the way I work has a lot to do with place. You know, I go to places and I'm very inspired by places. And, um, you know, I bounce off them. I bounce off the atmospheres, which I find. And this sort of exploration is, is part of my process. And and obviously, you know, you spend time uh, living out on the Bear Peninsula. I, I'm assuming a lot of your work then is expi- is, is inspired by uh, the beauty and, and, the, and the ruggedness of the area? It is. I mean, I was living in Barra throughout my teenage years, um, throughout the 90s, and I made my first films and sort of taught myself how to make films when I was living there. And the beauty and the atmosphere of the area was a very strong influence, but I think in some ways it was less conscious back then, simply because that was where I was living, so that obviously is also where I was making films. And then I drifted away from it a little bit, and um, I came back to it very strongly a couple of years ago with a film called Daughter of the Sun, a short film which is my sort of retelling of the story of the character of the Hag of Barra. And that was kind of a very deliberate um, return to Barra and probably the first time I've actually used the law and the history of the place, uh, you know, as well as just sort of drawing on it as a backdrop or almost like my own private film set. 
Yeah, because I, 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 you know, when you start Googling stuff and you, and you end up going down a rabbit hole online, I must have spent about two hours uh, yesterday looking at uh, YouTube work. It's stuff of yours that's up on uh, YouTube. Uh, and in particular, you know, um, this A Daughter of the Sun um, a piece. I had never heard of the, the legend of the Hag of Bera. Um, the Hag of Bera, it's it, it sort of manifests as a stone near Kilcatherine, a rock, which is supposedly the Hag when you know she was petrified um, for stealing the prayer book of Saint Catherine, um, who was bringing Christianity to the to the area. Um, the Hag is it's it, it's a very sort of wide ranging archetype. Um, you know, it's, it's based in Barra, but the, the kayak is also part of the mythology of Scotland and other parts of Ireland as well. And what it really has to do with is cycles, um, you know, the cycle of time, the cycle of the seasons. The seasons, yeah. Because she, she's, she's just tied into St. Bridget. Yeah, she, she's very much associated with winter as well. Um, yeah. And Daughter of the Sun is kind of a... I, I got that from some old text. It's... Uh, you know, she comes after the summer, so you know it, it, it's kind of nice instead of Queen of Winter or something, Daughter of the Sun. Yeah, it's nice. It's a nice phrase. Winter. Yeah, it's a it's a, it's a lovely phrase. And I know uh, you you concluded you you had a year long residency as UCC film artist. That's right. How did that go for you? It went extremely well. Um, it's a, an amazing initiative on the part of UCC and the Arts Council, where you get to teach and interact with the staff and the students for the first few months of the year, and then you're basically left off to develop your own projects for the rest of it. Um, and it was a very rich experience um, working with the staff and students there. It was, um, was very inspiring. Okay, well done. And what's next um, after, uh, what's, what's now next, now that that year is up, what's next for, for Maxwell Kane? Well, I'm in the middle of making a film with my partner, Shelley Camille, um, called Now and Forever, which is kind of a different type of film. I suppose you could describe it as an experimental, psychedelic, uh, science fiction mockumentary, um, which deals with the theme of marriage and is shot between here and Las Vegas. And there's sort of two, two sort of fabricated narratives around marriage, um, which bounce off each other. There's like a you know, Las Vegas is the marriage capital of the world, and there's some sort of tie-up with aliens gambling on people's marriages. And then over on the Irish side, we've come up with a totally spurious account of the origins of the Irish race, <laughs> again, through this sort of marriage thing. And somehow in the middle of it, there's footage of our own wedding, which took place in Las Vegas. So it's like <laughs> life and art completely mixing, and it's going to be crazy and I think very funny. Okay, well, yeah, I, I saw clips of it, as I say, on YouTube last night, uh, uh, yesterday evening, and it struck me. I'd love to spend an hour inside your head. You've got the most vividest imagination. Uh, it's, it, it's incredible. And you say you started the filmmaking as a child. Well, I started at age 15. I, Teenager. Which, um, you know, these days is, is, is positively middle-aged. I, mean, <laughs> I, I work. Part of what I do is pay the bills. I work in youth film and now with mobile phones yeah. and all that technology, um, people are shooting video from year dot. But I guess back in the mid-90s, 15 wasn't um, wasn't all that old. What was but, it? A, ca- um, a camcorder? A camcorder, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. it was something I'd longed for for years because I'd always wanted to make films and um, to the point that 
I think when I was eight or nine, I realized that not everyone wanted to make films. And this was kind of a big surprise to me. <laughs> Listen, you've got you've got a great talent and, and a great gift. And we wish you luck with uh, Solitaire. It's tonight at the Triscoll Arts Centre at half past eight. Are there tickets still available? Do you know I meant to check before I came on this morning? They, they are. They yeah. are. They're still available. Yeah. OK, CorkFilmFestival.org. Uh, Listen, Max, it was a real pleasure talking to you. Continue good luck uh, with Thank your you future much. filmmaking. And thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good morning Thank to you. you. Bye-bye. That is Max uh, Lacane, who is a West Cork uh, filmmaker with a great, great talent. 0818 103 103. Bernie's taking your calls. You can text or WhatsApp us to 0862 103 103. West Cork listener was on to us to say, please, 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 if you... She regularly drives on the N71 through uh, West Cork and she said her biggest problem on that road is the number of slow drivers. She said they're holding everybody up, but she said, well, really frustrates her is even though there'll be a line of cars behind the slow driver they never pull in when they have the opportunity to pull in so she rang us to say would you ask people to please be aware of the build up of cars behind you and when you get the opportunity please please uh, pull in. Now a reminder to you if you're involved with any kind of a community group a local organisation any kind of a, a charity and you are producing calendars for 2024 to get a copy of the calendar into us please as soon as possible. Now it's it's important that you in- include uh, where the calendars are on sale, how much the calendars cost. If you want to tell us a little bit about the photographs that you have in your calendar for 2024, please do. And we'll start giving shout outs uh, in the next week or two to people who've got calendars. We all need to buy calendars every year and we're always trying to encourage people to support a local organisation. You get your calendar and at the same time, some local organisation will uh, benefit. So get your calendars in to me here, please. Uh, Patricia Messenger, C103. Majestic Business Park in Mallow. Get working on that as long as the proceeds from the calendar is going to charity. Uh, we'll give as many mentions to the calendars as we can between now and Christmas. 0818 103 103. Reminding you that we here at C103 we are supporting Cork Simon because nobody wants to think about the idea of a child growing up in homelessness but unfortunately that's going to be the reality for many children in Ireland again this Christmas. So we're teaming up with Cork Simon and we're asking you to host a Christmas jumper day and that's by doing that you're ensuring help will always be on hand for those who need it the most particularly children homeless at Christmas now signing up is very easy you go to corksimon.ie and then you decide when and where you want to hold your Christmas jumper day you can do it in school you can do it at home you can do it in the office wherever you work you can even do it online and by signing up to corksimon.ie for their Christmas jumper day for this year you'll help raise vital funds for Cork Simon particularly this Christmas with their C103 and we're looking forward to our Christmas Jumper Day which we're doing tomorrow week. I need to uh, get out the old Christmas jumpers and get them out quick. Now if you've got a pet question for Jane because it's Thursday get your pet questions in uh, please. Bernie's taking the calls at 0818 103 103 or you could text or WhatsApp in a pet question to 0862 103 103. Let me take a look at some of your calls and uh, comments coming in to the uh, area. There was a lovely text in seeing as I've just mentioned Christmas Jumper Day for more this is from uh, more says hi Patricia I was coming from a hospital appointment yesterday feeling a little bit sore after an injection now I wouldn't describe myself as a Christmas lunatic but coming through Lizarda we stopped at a small Christmas shop I have to say, I left that shop feeling in good form. It's a small family run business. And all I can say is, OMG, amazing. 
That's from Maura. Well done. I don't know. Does anybody know the name of that shop? It's a small family-run business in Lazard and they've got a Christmas shop. Good luck to everybody involved there. Please try to support all of those small local independent stores where you can. And staying in West Cork, remember in the last hour, a listener in the West Cork area was on to us um, and she was complaining about people who drive too slowly. She is a regular motorist on the N71 and she said it frustrates the life out of her slow drivers because she said it holds everybody else up and what really annoys her is that when they have an opportunity to pull in, they don't pull in, they don't seem to be aware that there's a build-up of cars behind them. Well, Michael says, Patricia, I heard that comment area from that listener in West Cork about slow driving. In my opinion, if everybody slowed down even just a little bit it might help stop the slaughter on our roads this kind of attitude is a huge part of the problem on our roads today people seem to have no concept of speed to match road and our weather conditions are giving consideration to others on the road as the new government committee meets today uh, maybe this texture should reflect on their own speed instead uh, says uh, Michael well I suppose that lady would get back and when you know when you're saying give consideration to others on the road she would probably come back and say well the car in the front who's driving way too slow is the one that should be giving consideration to the people uh, behind but you are right but we all need to be aware of our speed and we do need to match our speed depending on the road condition or the weather condition and just because it says 100 kilometres per hour it doesn't mean you have to be travelling at 100 kilometres per hour thank you for that let me stay on roads because somebody sent me in a picture Uh, here it is Um, there's no name on this Hi Patricia I'm just checking to see if you know is there a standard that the council must use for filling potholes the reason why I attach a photograph that was taken yesterday of recently filled in potholes it looks like the tar was just shoveled in and then left for the cars to compact it when you think of the cost to fill the potholes the truck the diesel the labour the material the maintenance and this is the result it's a disgrace there should be some form of compactor used as we all know when you drive on fresh tar it sticks to your tyres yeah, and it can, it can mark your car uh, as well I mean, I don't know. Was a compactor used? Did it rain afterwards? I don't know. I mean, certainly, thank you for sending on the photograph because certainly looking at the photograph, it does look like uh, somebody just, you know, decided to fill it in and great to see that it was uh, filled in but uh, it doesn't look like it was compacted properly because there seems to be bits of tar all over the place I, I don't know maybe uh, maybe cars started driving driving over too quickly I, I, I would assume so okay what we need is somebody in the know ideally somebody who has experience of filling potholes you put the the tyre and the chips and, and whatever in does it always it must always have to be compacted in some way and I'm looking at it there's one one sort of very large pothole and then two, three, four, five it's about five potholes were, were, were filled in would a compactor always be used I suppose is the question 0818 103 103 and thank you I've, listeners are great when I put a shout out saying does anybody know the name of that uh, shop Teresa lives near Lasarda she's been on to a straight away she said the Christmas display that Maura was talking about in Lazarda. It's the Magnolia Garden Centre. The owners are Mary and Kevin. And I love this. Teresa said they are the nicest couple you could meet. Okay, well, well done. Can somebody tell Mary and Kevin at the Magnolia Garden Centre that we were complimenting them on, particularly on their Christmas uh, display. And if you're out and about near Lazarda, do uh, pop into them, please. 0818 103 103. We were talking about smoky coal and 
uh, should there be an outright ban on all smoky fuels and that led to me talking about the uh, the Sustainable Energy Ireland who are saying we're not doing enough in this country we need to do more and they've come up with a host of different suggestions like one of them was, was to have a scrappage scheme for boilers and the idea would be you would scrap your boiler and you'd get some kind of a grant instead that would make you switch over to electric heat pumps they you know spoke about things like anyone who opts to drive a, a large SUV which they say are gas fuel guzzlers that you should pay some kind of extra tax on it because they are emitting so much uh, carbon. And they even said, should we consider some limits on air travel until decarbonisation actions take effect? Because they're saying we are nowhere near um, getting rid of our dependency on fossil fuel. OK, some of your thoughts on that. Eddie in Mahan says on smokeless coal. Uh, let's uh, that What happens with smokeless coal? Because somebody was saying the amount of smoke that comes from Cold, and I was saying, is it smokeless or smoke free? Whatever. Anyway, uh, Eddie and Man, the man in the know, he says, when you buy smokeless coal, it lets off smoke when it's first heating up, but then when it when it goes bright red, uh, it causes little or no smoke. He cleans his chimney twice a year, and he said, there's very little soot out of smokeless coal. John says on emissions, people who rely on solid fuel simply can't afford to change over to what is the environmentally friendly way of uh, doing it. And this is to go uh, with an electric heat pump. He said that simply is the issue. People don't have the money. He said the climate thing is another chance for big business to simply just make money. Uh, Stephen in County Kerry listening to us says, Patricia, you mentioned aviation and should we be all limited on the number of flights we take every year? Stephen says he remembers Googling this one time and seemingly at any given moment in time, there is between 8,000 and 18,000 planes in the sky. Stephen says that really is hard to believe. And if you look at any of those flight radars, uh, particularly if you go in, um, if you look around like cities like uh, New York or Sydney or London or Paris around the airport and the amount of planes in the sky waiting to land, it's just incredible. They're all like tiny ants when you're looking at the flight uh, radar. But yeah, that's an astonishing figure between 8,000 and 18,000 planes in the sky at any one time. It's, uh, it really is incredible. And then somebody else on this whole emissions thing says, do people know that America and China are responsible for about 50% of the CO2 emissions worldwide every single year? Ireland, on the other hand, doesn't even register on the chart. We're not even there as a percentage of the amount of CO2 emissions. And by the way, China hasn't and won't sign up to any green charter. Why? They simply can't. It would be the end of them. And America, remember, they pulled out of the Paris Accord, so that was a fingers up to all, while they are mostly responsible for emissions. Meanwhile, our Irish politicians are hell-bent on crippling this country with ridiculous taxes on the backs of the ordinary Joe and Mary Soap. While every half-intelligent person knows it's a money-making, complete waste of time and money. If Ireland miraculously turned fully green as Eamon Ryan's window boxes, it wouldn't make the slightest bit of difference. Wake up, people. Smokeless coal, my rear end, uh, says a texter with no name on it. And I suppose that goes back to 
environmentalists will say, yeah, we might make much of a difference, but do we do we all not need to do our bit? This listener feels no. 0818103103. And just a final one from Michael to say, hi, Patricia, dear old England. They're in trouble again with the asylum seekers that they had planned to pile on planes and send to Rwanda. Their Supreme Court only yesterday ruled against them. But no, they are not going to accept the ruling of the highest court in their land. But then that's nothing new in the UK. So what are they going to do? They're going to change the law to have it their own way. However, I can guarantee you, says Michael, that there will be a challenge in the low and district court. It'll then appeal to the high court until it again reaches the very same Supreme Court that ruled yesterday. Might take a few years, but it will happen and it'll come out with the same results. Ah, sure, heck, they won't be satisfied with that either. It is all just a sorrowful uh, mess. And I was following that story uh, yesterday of and the and Michael is right the Richie Sunak the British Prime Minister came out immediately and promised emergency legislation and he says he'll he'll open up and have a new treaty with Rwanda to ensure that what he has always seen as his flagship asylum policy is not blocked again by the UK Supreme Court. They said yesterday that it is unlawful. Rishi Sunak said he would end the merry-go-round of legal challenges with a law to deem the East African nation of Rwanda a safe country after his plans to what he calls stop the boats uh, were blocked. Now he is resisting pressure from the kind of the right wing element of the Conservative Party to pull the EU out of the European Convention on uh, Human Rights. But he did say, I will not allow a foreign court to block these uh, flights. But it's just scary to think that they would pull out of the European Convention on uh, Human uh, Rights. And the highest court in the land in the UK rejected the government's appeal over this idea of asylum seekers when they arrive in the UK will send them instead to Rwanda and they can have their asylum claimed there. All of the judges said it was unlawful because there was a risk that genuine asylum seekers would be forced back to their country of origin by Rwanda. So Richie Sunak says he's going to come up now with a new treaty with Rwanda to make sure that won't happen. So it's kind of one of those watch this space. But it really is a kind of a story when it might be a story coming out of the UK. It is a kind of a story that we have skin in the game here because when they first started talking about sending asylum seekers to Rwanda there was a belief that people tried to bypass asylum seekers were bypassing the UK and many have said it's one of the reasons that we here in Ireland saw an increase in people coming here to claim asylum so there, there has been a knock-on effect in this country even though I did see Michael um, posted a piece from Sky News uh, this morning about this whole notion of sending asylum seekers to Rwanda is, you know is it a deterrent to migrants who are still trying to get into the UK and a Sky, one of the Sky's correspondents who was reporting from Calais said he only met one person who said the, and this is asylum seekers who are now in Calais trying to get across the channel. He said he only met one person who said the prospect of being sent to Rwanda was a genuine uh, deterrent uh, in all of his time uh, covering this story. So maybe it's not the bigger deterrent that Richie Sunak thinks it is. 0818 103 103.
Bernie is taking your calls. You can text her WhatsApp to 0862 103 103. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council, where communities and businesses all across the county can get the support they need at corkcoco.ie. Kildallery Community Development, they're holding their weekly lotto draw. It's on this afternoon at four. Local community centre, the jackpot is 11,200 and tickets are on sale. All local outlets and the community office. Table quiz on tonight in the Bridge House in Mallow. Now it's in support of La Family Resource Centre and the Mallow Women's Shed. It'll start at half past eight. Tables of four, 40 euro, all are welcome. And Tara's Jock, the wonderful charity shop in Dunmanway, they're accepting donations of clothes, shoes, bed linen to help in their endeavours to support families in need in the area this Christmas. If you have any unwanted items, please donate by dropping them into the shop or you can call 086 408 8674 to arrange a convenient time. And a concert in aid of the wonderful first responders will be held in Ballyheeda Church uh, tomorrow Friday at 8 o'clock. The Glasslin Choir, the River Rhythms Choir, Joanne Walsh and Diana Llewellyn will all perform. Cash donations will be accepted on the night for the first responders in Ballinhasic. And tomorrow at four o'clock sharp, we'll see the official opening ceremony for the major Bally McQuirk roundabout project that will take place at the Sportsfield Cafe Hub in Bantir. All local community are welcome to this special uh, event. And music by Beethoven and Brahms with the Van Ber- Berg and friends in the Glen Theatre in Bantir is down for Friday night at eight. Tickets are 20 euro, available at the door by book. 029-56239. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. New TB rules would curtail the cattle trade. In this week's Irish Farmers Journal, find out what new rules the department is proposing to stem the spread of TB. Reweighting makes it back into EU nature restoration law. British Blue Tongue case marks import ban. Straw imports surge to counter Irish shortage. County councils told to ramp up farm inspections. Everything retiring farmers need to know about the Fair Deal Scheme plus your comprehensive guide to next week's Dairy Day. All inside this week's Irish Farmers Journal on sale now. Join Motorview Kia Middleton for Open Week, Monday 13th to Sunday 19th of November. Celebrating the 30th anniversary of the Sportage with a fantastic offer on a 241 and the all-new EV9. Drop into the Motorview Kia showroom, order your 241 vehicle and receive a €500 Euro shopping voucher, three years AA assist, electric charger and finance from 1.9%. Talk to an experienced staff member or take a test drive. See motorview.ie for more. Lending criteria, terms and conditions apply. At Borgosh Energy, we're making energy more affordable for new and existing customers with savings of 15% off dual fuel, electricity and gas and 20% off our smart plans. Visit BorgoshEnergy.ie for more. Borgosh Energy. Imagine a better way. 12-month contract and discount offer unit rates with direct debit and paperless billing. Unit rates standing charge supply. See BorgoshEnergy.ie for individual estimated annual bills for each offer. Prices and full TNCs. This weekend is not just another weekend. It's special. It's a one-off. Because this weekend is Black Friday weekend at Soundstore. Black Friday means massive discounts on kitchen appliances, TVs, and computers. Check out our Black Friday deals online now at soundstore.ie. Attention Cork. 
Updated proposals for 11 sustainable transport corridors as part of the Bus Connects Cork programme have now been published for a third round of public consultation. These corridors will mean better bus services and improved cycling and walking facilities on key routes. It's time to have your say. Go to busconnects.ie to view the updated proposals and give your feedback. Bus Connects, an initiative of the Government of Ireland. It's not every day you win a Retail Excellence Large Online Retailer of the Year Award. So, at Easy Living Interiors, we're celebrating the best way we know how. With our best ever Black Friday sale, everything is reduced. Sofas, dining, living, bedroom, accessories. And because we're also celebrating 35 years in business, we have 35 extra special offers. Shop online or in-store in Paula Duff, Eastgate, North Point Business Park and Man Point. Easy Living Interiors, Black Friday sale. Now, now, on. Email Patricia now with your story or comment. Cork today at c103.ie. Cork today on C103. And seeing as we mentioned the lovely garden centre in uh, Lasarda a couple of minutes ago, somebody in West Cork, somebody's come out in support of a garden centre in North Cork. So I want to say what a lovely garden centre in Mallow is. Joyce's garden centre on the Navigation Road. What a courteous and how courteous and helpful the owner Ken Joyce is. And that's from a regular listener. Thank you for that. We were talking about the installation of the electric heat pump. Somebody wants to point out there's no point in simply installing a heat pump without carrying out a wide range of other work to effectively seal your home. The, the best way for heat pumps to work and the cheapest way for them to work is you literally have to be almost in a sealed box is what your house has to be. The overall cost is huge, says this listener, and the heat pump is only one element of it and that's a fair enough point when we were talking about heat pumps. And then there's this um, text that came in yesterday that I didn't get around uh, to. Remember yesterday we were talking about pedestrian crossings and there was various sides of the argument coming in. Some people were saying pedestrians are at fault because they're not using pedestrian crossings properly you know they're just walking out they're not checking if there's cars coming and others were saying no it's the drivers that are at fault they need to stop when they're approaching a pedestrian crossing but listen to this text for a near miss Patricia I was crossing at a pedestrian crossing on the Cork Road in Carrigaline it was a few years ago I had my baby in his buggy so I checked very carefully before venturing onwards and crossing the pedestrian crossing the traffic was halted on the near side while there was no traffic on the left. Now in front of me was a lady with a guide dog. This was a guide dog in training. So we were following after them. Suddenly, as the lady ahead reached the halfway point of the road on the pedestrian crossing, the guide dog stopped before literally dragging the lady backwards on top of us on top of my baby and the buggy and myself. So we were all forced backwards too. The dog was in control, so we really had no say in what was happening, but we were bewildered. And the lady with the dog glanced apologetically back at me. Then, just at that moment, a car raced through the pedestrian crossing in shock. I then started to realise that the dog had sensed the danger And it saved us all from being run down. Now, the driver that had raced through the pedestrian crossing noticed the pedestrian crossing too late as the sun was low and it temporarily blinded her. In fairness, she pulled in. She jumped out of the car, head in her hands to check that we were all okay, as she knew that she could have hit all of us. She thought that we had saved ourselves, but we all marvelled at the instincts of the training dog. Since then, I advise anyone 
using a pedestrian crossing to always check again at the halfway point if cars haven't already stopped when starting to cross. We were so blessed that day that that gifted dog was there to save us all. God, what a great story. I mean, a great story. And how fantastic those guide dogs are and their instincts are unbelievable. And that was only a guide dog in training. Uh, some lucky person, uh, visually impaired person, uh, is going to get a real, real gift of a super, super guide dog. Thank you. That WhatsApp to 0862103103. Now, I want to bring you this piece because I'm really interested in this. There is, there's a new sports documentary out. You may have heard about it. It's called One Night in Mill Street. And it is a sports documentary that recalls in really rich detail how Steve Collins, remember Steve Collins, how he dethroned Chris Eubank, uh, following weeks of lively engagements and press conferences between the two. And as well as the key parties involved, this documentary features the likes of Barry Herm. It features our own Noel C. Duggan, Tony Quinn and journalist Paul Howard. It's meant to be an absolutely wonderful documentary. And Trevor Welsh from the C103 Sports Department went along to the screening of the documentary and he sent us a report that was edited and put together by uh, Stephen uh, Fox. Trevor first spoke to the man himself, Steve Collins. Uh, it sounds strange. As I said to people, I know I was fighting on, you know, for the title. I was there, but I didn't experience what went on around it. And then when I sat there tonight and I saw all that went on around it, and I kind of wished I had been there on the outside. But Cork has been special to you all around, even, as you said, 25 years later, mm-hmm. to have the Premier in Cork as well. It was important to you, was it? I made my international debut in the Cork 800 celebrations. I fought mm. for Ireland as lay heavyweight against uh, Wales and I won. So Cork has always been a great place for me. I used to come here for holidays, vacations. I met some wonderful people here. I considered living here. Yeah, it's just Cork's been a very, very uh, positive city for me. And even my, even my wife, who's pure London, loves Cork. And she said, if ever we move to Ireland, we move to Cork. I mean, you've got a oh, great reception here tonight, the everyone. It was great, actually. Um, everything about it was positive. I mean, you know, there's loads of other stories attached to it around it and, and involved. That, you know, but you can't show everything. But they covered quite a bit and everybody got their fair say and, and, and um, it was very balanced. And, and Yeah, it, got, it gave me an opportunity to, to experience what went on because, as I say, I was in the ring. I didn't really see it. I'm overwhelmed at the experience now. I never forgot it since it happened. And I remember leading up to it and everything, you know. So it's going, I'm writing my old book now of my life and there'll be several pa- paragraphs about this. Yeah. The relationship with Steve is, is, is really special, isn't it? Oh, very special. And, and he was very ordinary before, during and, and ever since. In the horse world, we say, if there's a good horse produced, the, the dam gets uh, 90% and the stallion only gets 10 <laughs> So I was glad he spoke about his mother. I was hungry to make things happen. And hunger is a great sauce, and uh, I think that helped a lot. And then having had the Eurovision before that, but this was a way bigger occasion and lasted longer and spread wider. Did you know he won on the night, Nolsey? Did you know he actually I, I won? I said it to him. I went into the ring, I was first in, and I said, Steve, I think you have won. And he said to me, I know I've won, he said. So he was fairly certain. Mind you, I wouldn't quite so certain. I thought it was a fabulous documentary, and it brought back great memories. and. Really, that era of the 90 onwards was just special, wasn't it? I mean, you know, the World Cup, Cork winning the Dublin, and right. Steve winning the World Title in Midstreet, like, you know, Steve Collins. When you think about it, like, Midstreet's kind of our knock airport, like, you know what I mean? 
like everybody said, this is madness. You know, I remember when the Eurovision going through ministry, everybody said this is madness. Mm. Yeah, made, as, as someone said, as Stephen, sorry, said there, it made Riverdance. That's when I got the first hearing. Steve was very emotional himself, wasn't he? He was, he and I met, him before, I met him before the, the, the movie and the, the documentary. I just met his mother there. and, and Wonderful working-class family. Worked hard, uh, trained extremely hard, and got, his, got an opportunity. But it took him a long time to get the opportunity, you know. Uh, and they're lovely people. It's just very heartwarming to witness that tonight. It's been a great night for Cork Boxing. The stadium with three super elite winners. Probably the best night in a long time for Cork Boxing, you know. OK, finishing up there with the Thornish Simeon Martin. And thanks to Trevor Welch, who went along to the Irish Gala screening at the Cork Film Festival at the uh, Everyman last uh, Sunday uh, night. Uh, and by the way, because this documentary, I'm really looking forward uh, to seeing. They will be a, um, a a national and potentially an international release at a future date. It just hasn't been released yet uh, to the cinemas. And listen, I'm not one to jump in and uh, to correct our Thornish Simeon Martin. And I think he said in the clip that it was said by uh, Steve and uh, Steve Collins. Everybody makes the mistake uh, in thinking that the night of the Eurovision in Mill Street on the 15th of May 1993, everyone makes the mistake that Riverdance was the interval act. It wasn't. Riverdance wasn't the interval act in Mill Street. Riverdance was the interval act the following year in uh, Dublin. I'm open to correction but I think the interval act in Mill Street was something to do. It was children, wasn't it? And uh, it was Johnny Logan. Uh, somebody in Mill Street can let me know that but it definitely wasn't Riverdance now Riverdance was staged in Mill Street in latter years but it didn't get its uh, premiere at that Eurovision it was the Eurovision the following year anyway uh, that sounds like a really good documentary it's called One Night in Mill Street also was really intrigued to hear that Noel C. Duggan when he was speaking to Trevor that he's writing his uh, story his autobiography at the moment that will be a terrific read 0818 103 103 do you have a pet question for us because Jane Pickett, our resident vet, is about to join us. So get your pet questions in, please. And you can text or WhatsApp a pet question to 0862 103 103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Eggfoil Mock Quid Then and Here is Farlin. Shaw eight thrower C one oh three Air Kirkig. It's Marga Bay and the English market, Elor Hahar Kirkui, in a will Ramesha Lahan Stali Shastoin, Le Bush Dadi, Bokhadi, Kanahori Aishk, Stali Glossri, Shapui Cafe a Hodas Clohish, Agus Avatni Smo. Dinkor Olo Hosu the Hodil, Win Sultas and Atmosphere, Noblasana, Agus Blafele on Irgniv Shaw, a hen shirgadin Vlien, Mila Shakyad Sahta Hocht. Exceed all your expectations. Renault Megane E-Tech 100% electric with 220 horsepower, up to 450 kilometers range and an electric bonus. Renault will match the €3,500 government grant when you buy a new Megane E-Tech 100% electric. So save €7,000 on your new electric Megane today. Visit Kiri's Cork and Middleton to find out more. T's and C's apply. See Renault.ie. I trust my kids. I trust my instinct. I trust my doctor to look after me. I trust my pharmacist to give me the best advice. I trust my pharmacist when they recommend a generic medicine from Clonmel Healthcare. I trust they're more affordable. 
And because Clonmel Healthcare has looked after Irish families for 40 years, I trust they look after me too. Ask for a generic medicine from Clonmel Healthcare, looking after you and yours since 1970. The Soundstore Black Friday sale is now on. Up to €500 Euro off Samsung big screen TVs. Get a half-price soundbar with any Samsung TV. For huge savings on Samsung TVs, get to Soundstore at Market Green, Middleton, Blackpool, Sarsfield Road or soundstore.ie. At the Central Statistics Office, we're trusted to gather all sorts of information. So, we count lakes, stakes, and haulage intakes. We count wages, ages, and all of life's stages. We count loans, phones, still living at home. We count euros and cents and housing and rents. We count Mars, electric cars, and the price of a jar. Because this data informs important decisions on everything from economic activity to housing policy to what to call a new baby. And we can't do it without you. CSO, count on us. We count on you. At ESB, we're investing in the skills needed to solve the energy problems of today and tomorrow. Skills that will be critical in helping communities across Ireland combat the effects of climate change and achieve a net zero future. That's why we support education programs like ESB Science Blast that encourage children's scientific curiosity and inspire them to become creative problem solvers. Because we are, and always have been, invested in Ireland. Find out more at esb.ie. Brace yourself for the ultimate shopping extravaganza. The Casey's Furniture Black Friday event has arrived, both online and in store in Cork and Limerick. Let the festive spirit travel nationwide with our seamless delivery. Revamp your space with unbeatable value from Casey's Furniture. Seize the moment and redefine luxury this season. Give the gift of endless options this Christmas with a gift card for Mahan Point Shopping Centre. Gift cards can be redeemed at over 70 stores at Mahan Point Shopping Centre and Retail Park. Something for everyone. That's the point. Corporate sales also available with great tax incentives. Order now at mahanpointsc.ie. Call Patricia with your comment. 0858 103 103. Talk to me. Cork today on C103. Let's head to the Islandwood Veterinary Hospital in Newmarket, part of the Mill Street Veterinary Group, where Jane Pickett, our resident vet, joins us. Uh, good afternoon, Jane. Good afternoon, Patricia. And you're, you're very welcome. Okay, straight in with a question from Derek. Derek wants to know, can I use human shampoo on my dog? It's a bit of a difficult one. I would normally advise it's probably not the best idea. Um, And that's mainly to do with the pH or the acidity of the shampoo. So our skin is a little bit different from dog and cat skin. Um, We have different bacteria growing there in in the main part. A lot of them are the same. There are a few oddities. But we do tend to have quite a different skin pH. Um, So shampoos that you or I would have would be kind of optimised, in most cases, the good ones anyway, to try and keep the status quo, to keep everything as it is. We don't want, you know, to irritate the scalp um, by changing the environment too much. Um, And you can imagine if you used a human shampoo that was designed for a human scalp environment and a dog's one was a little bit different, it's not going to be able to keep things the same in the same way that a shampoo does when it's designed for a certain thing so I would say look it's not the worst thing in the world but I think you're kind of 
asking for trouble potentially mm-hmm. particularly in a dog with sensitive skin so i'd say it's probably best to just avoid the hassle if i'm honest and just get yourself a doggy shampoo there's lots of ones available on the market yeah because when you go down that route of, of skin allergies even though i i, I do yeah. know a friend of mine was uh, staying in a, in a house she hadn't stayed in before and went into uh, went into uh, have a shower and picked up a shampoo and used it it turned out to be uh, dog shampoo and she said she got the great no she didn't she only used it once but she said she got the greatest shine on her hair and she didn't have any adverse reaction <laughs> but she found out afterwards okay now Lisa has a 12 year old a border a collie um, now a great dog to walk the normal routine has been one long walk and then maybe three or four times a day they'd be out for short walks doing the business and all that but she's noticed of late that the one long walk and just one shorter walk even on the long walk he seems to be getting very tired she's wondering do you need to ease back on the walks as a dog is getting older so apart from that he's in really good health he gets his regular check ups with the vet but you need to ease back as he heads into older years Hmm. I think on the whole maybe a tiny little bit that said you know we have lots of very super fit dogs into their into their teams that are quite happy to go for a big long walk and others that are maybe a little bit slower it's it's like ourselves uh, I suppose in in time old age and infirmity comes to us all so we might need to slow down a wee bit that said I wouldn't just write it off as old age straight off the bat um, I'm glad that he's been going for his regular health checkups and everything's good. But what I'd say is if this is a change for your pet now, particularly if it's since they last saw the vet or since, since you bought it up with the vet, is have a chat with your vet again. I think any change in any pet is always kind of a, a big red flag to say, I need to dig into this further. I just need to make sure everything's OK. So if your pet has slowed down a little bit on his walks, it might just be that he's a little bit older, a little bit more senior, not able to do as much. But it could also be something that we could help him out with. So, you know, I suppose the common things are common. Joint disease is really, really common in this population of dogs that are into their teens or, or 12. Uh, I suppose for a big dog is getting up there in the age bracket anyway. Um, and I suppose that is something that we can really help them out with. So even though you mightn't be seeing any obvious signs of lameness or discomfort, your dog might be really, really stoic and hiding it well because they keep wanting to go for their walks. But it might be something that your vet might be able to pick up on a physical exam armed with that information that he's slowing down a wee bit. Or it could be something else, I suppose, early warning signs of, of heart disease, of lung disease. They can begin to show kind of decline in their exercise tolerance, not be able to do as much as they once did. And again, there's lots of things that we can do to help them out with that. Might require some further investigation, but again, it is something that is definitely worth pursuing. If all of those things come back normal and your vet is very satisfied that we have an otherwise well dog, it may indeed be that he's just a little wee bit older. His priorities have changed. He's not so keen to be chasing a ball at 90 miles an hour for 10 hours a day. He's he's more keen on his sleep and relaxing a little bit. So it is possible. Yeah, because older dogs and cats certainly do sleep more than they would have when they were young when they were younger okay here's one that somebody's just been thinking about this is to do with uh, dogs going missing uh, could you please ask Jane the vet when vets are microchipping a, a dog have they ever considered a GPS tracking device surely it would save so much time and heartache for owners when a much loved oh, pet goes missing is that absolutely. possible is it possible I, I wish I wish it was but it's not currently look who knows what the future might hold I think that's a really important point uh, a microchip is not a GPS tracker. And I think some people sometimes think they are, hopefully. And it would be lovely if they were. But what they do is they basically just hold a barcode. They just hold a, 
a code essentially that if a, a scanner is put over them it gives us a number which we'll be able to track on a database back to your details to reunite you with your pet should they go missing so it's really really important to do because you know far more pets that are microchipped get reunited with their owners than the ones that are microchipped which is very sad um but unfortunately no hasn't been hasn't been invented yet but it's not to say that it won't be no but what i will say is that although we can't implant a gps tracker yet there are lots of dog gps trackers available on the market they wouldn't be a veterinary product so they wouldn't be part of the microchip as such but there are ones that you can get to attach to the collar um i know i know some cat owners that love love watching to see where their cat has been all day uh on the gps tracker so have a little google online there are plenty of them but make sure you read the reviews because i know that there's some some good and bad out there on the market so try and get a recommendation i don't have any recommendations for Personally, I haven't used any of them myself yet, um, but I think just do a good little Google online and I'm, I'm sure you'll be able to find something suitable. OK, Dennis, listening to us in Oxford, has a two year old male Springer Spaniel. He keeps biting and nipping at his feet. Dennis is wondering, would something as simple as bathing his feet in Epsom salts, would it help? What would you recommend or what do you think is going on? I, I would probably say no. So Epsom salts probably wouldn't be the best thing um, to be doing in this particular situation. I would say that it sounds like this little doggy is quite itchy. Um, so if he's nipping and biting at his feet, it could be that he has a little bit of an allergy or potentially even something simpler than that. He might just have a bit of a bacterial overgrowth between his toes or a little bit of a yeasty infection. Ultimately, the toes are a hot spot for a nice warm wet area the bacteria and yeast love to thrive in and overgrow and they can make the skin quite itchy um but again a lot of the time we see pets with allergies that present with just itchy toes as their primary symptom essentially it's kind of like biting your nails it's it's an easy area for them to get to yeah uh, rather than trying to get to an obscure area along their back to itch what i would say is that if you've noticed this for your pet first things first make sure that their parasite control is controlled um so just make sure that they have up-to-date parasite control speak to your vet if you're not sure there are some mites that can leave, live let's say in the areas that are in contact with grass it's not particularly the time of year for them at the moment but it is possible but secondly i'd probably recommend a visit to your vet it might be that they might need to take some samples from the area a lot of the time we can take really painless skin samples from these dogs just with a little bit of tape or a swab that will give us a huge amount of information when we look at them under the microscope to know what's going on so please don't be worried i think this one is best to nip in the bud early visit your vet i wouldn't try any home remedies with this one just yet okay nip in the bud to stop him nipping listen we leave it there have a lovely week and we'll chat again next thursday jane you too. Thank, Thank you, you for Richard. that, Jane Pickett, the Islandwood Veterinary Hospital in Newmarket, part of the Mill Street Veterinary Clinic. As Taylor Swift on C103, and that is Cruel uh, Summer. That's where I leave you for today. My thanks to Bernie Murphy, who is uh, producing and filling in for John Paul this week. And we'll be back for the final one of the week. Another week flying by Friday's edition of the programme tomorrow at 10. Until then, I'm Patricia Messenger. A very good afternoon and mind yourself. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,